Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Rana McBerto Willis, your host. As you know, uh, we're a political show, but, you know, politics involves every part of your body. And uh, every so often we do a little change up here. So today we decided to have health educator, Dr. Julie Gatza, a.k.a. Dr. Julie She's one of the nation's top chiropractic physicians with 30 years of clinical practice, during which she assisted many thousands of patients resolve a wide variety of physical ailments. Using her understanding of the nervous system, nutrition, and alternative therapies, something that I love to hear about, Dr. Gatza's mission with each patient is to enhance their body's potential to heal itself. In these political times, isn't that something that we need? Dr. Julie Welcome to Politics Done Right. Thank you for having me on your show. Look, uh, first of all, what is this thing about millennials feel like they are being chased by lions all the time and it's killing <laughs> them? You see, I have a millennial and I tell you that it's the life that I'm living watching her in that sort of domain. Tell me a little bit about that, first of all. Well, I have one also, and I do believe that. Um, I mentioned that in the little write-up because of the fact that we have an adrenal system and the adrenal system is uh, supposed to be set up that sits on top of your kidneys and it's there for the fight and flight. It's when things were really stressful, you're getting chased by the dog on the bicycle and you need to pedal faster. It was for short-term tremendous boosts of energy. And when you weren't using it, it had time to recover. Well, what's happening in our society now is we're under tremendous stress. We're under tremendous pressure. The, you know, the world has changed. The finances, everyone has to make a lot of money just to get by. And there's a lot of uh, pressure on everyone, really. But these millennials have not really had much downtime on this area. So their adrenal system is overworked. And thus, that affects their overall health. They're still young. They still have reserves. But they're getting beat up faster than we were at that age. And it will show up shortly unless they start to do some things that are smarter and healthier for the body. And maybe even more than what we had to do because our food has changed. Our society has changed our eating habits and our, our things that we think is okay to do. We never did when we grew up and we both know it's not the greatest for these millennials, all the coffee they drink and the weird drinks and the Red Bulls and all these strange things that they're putting into their body to try to make energy instead of um, letting the body relax and make its own. No, I centralize sort of on millennials because that is one of the things that I think you, you, you speak a whole lot about. But 
in this time of this political angst, this political uh, polarization where where people are at each other's throat. That is sort of a stressful thing, too, isn't it? Something that, you know, uh, on, on, on my program, I try to bring uh, united folks. I try to tell folks, irrespective of folks' ideology, we really need to try to get together to try to calm things down. What, what do you say about that? I say it starts with food. And it sounds silly, but it is something we do at least, you know, once a day, most of us three times a day. And when people are hyped up, when they're not sleeping well, when they're eating poorly, they're going to be more reactive. They're going to be more, you know, short fused. They're going to be more willing to, you know, have road rage and weird, you know, things that if they were fed correctly and they had enough sleep, they would probably think twice about, you know, reacting that way to others. So, for 30 years that I've been a doctor, I always focus on food and digestion first, because if you can get the good food, you can digest those nutrients, put them into your bloodstream, you're going to be as healthy as you can be because you're going to have an efficient system and you won't be running on empty and then expecting to perform like you're running on full. So, so you really do think that a, a lot of our, a, a lot of the way we are, the anxiety that we have, the, and all these things, if we were better fed, we would have better feelings, better, uh, uh, better ways of dealing with people just because we are fed better. I, I've seen it for so many times. I can't tell you. I didn't even know that this was this true. But I have patients that come in who, you know, have anxiety. They're depressed. They're quick tempered. They're short fused. And when we correct their diet, everybody, including them around them, says, wow they are so much better. I can't believe it. They're really, you know, all the better definitions and adjectives that you want to use for them, but they're calmer, they're sleeping better, they're not so irritable, they're, you know, nicer, and they like themselves, they're not so weepy. And uh, the fact is, it really does come from, are we missing a tremendous amount of nutrients in our diets, which absolutely we are. Why are we now more unhealthy than we used to be? Let's just say 20 years ago, we have an upswing on so many diseases. And it's because we haven't put the focus, we haven't taught our children um, way from, you know, kindergarten, and fifth grade and high school, how to, you know, select good foods, prepare good foods, serve good foods, eat good foods. Instead, we've allowed it to go roughshod and you know, fast food is everywhere and it's expected and people don't know how to cook the way that our grandparents did and we were taught. And, uh, you know, it's really it's it's gone in the way of we aren't fed nutrients. So we are um, being affected our health wise and our mental state. Now, you've kind of centralized on a, a teen. I mean, a, a millennials and I think teenagers, how do their systems really differ from anybody else's? And, you know, right now, as it is, a lot of folks. Uh, if you if you take a look at the commercials on TV and the ads on TV right now, it seems like they're always selling something for your gastric system, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, I've put the most attention on the di digestive system because I found that if you corrected the digestive system, you could handle a lot of the chronic problems. I, I'm a chiropractor, so you would think, well, what the heck is a chiropractor doing correcting people's digestion? Isn't that just a bone person? But let's say somebody comes in with a chronic neck problem. They've been everywhere. They've taken everything. When we correct their system digestively, we make sure that they're making enough enzymes. They're taking enzymes to break down their foods. It gets rid of the inflammation in the body. So if you're adjusting their neck, their neck now starts to hold. 
people with migraines, you know, all over the Olympics last night, I saw commercials for migraines and I thought, oh my goodness, they just haven't seen me. And the fact is <laughs> they needed to correct the digestive system, eat the right foods, get the correct enzymes in, um, adjust the spine. And, uh, you know, there's barely been a migraine I haven't seen that we haven't been able to correct. Now, that's just saying because I've got a nice formula, it works for so many other things in people's lives. And the difference between millennials is this is the time now that they should be storing nutrition. This is the time that they should have a vault full of reserves. And those reserves will help them in stressful times. Those reserves will help as they get older. And uh, they're missing out on correct and putting the reserves in. So when they turn 30 and 35 and 40, and they wonder why they feel not so great, and they, you know, are having a hard time, it's because now was the time that they should have been, you know, sort of storing up for winter to say, so to speak. Well, and, and what is, uh, what would you consider, um, a good diet anyway? I'm just curious about that because I know the people that are listening to me say, okay, Berto, since you brought on somebody on, on food and all that kind of stuff. All right. Just tell us what we should be eating. Okay. So, uh, one, I want to mention the fact that you can have a good diet, but if you can't break down those foods, it really becomes sort of a a silly game because you can put all the best food in, but you have to be able to have the enzymes to break it down. I've seen over 90% of the patients that come into my office are missing the adequate amount of digestive enzymes just to break down the food that they're putting on their plate. So that means they're already behind the eight ball and they're not getting the nutrients into the bloodstream. And the only way we can ever be healthy is with nutrition. You can't lay in a bathtub of vitamins and expect to be healthy. You can only get it from what you can put into the body, the quality of it, and then how do you absorb it? So with that, I've been giving high quality digestive enzymes for 30 years of being a doctor. The one that I use right now is Absorbade. So I put them on Absorbade for each meal so that they can get the most bang for their buck every time they're eating. So what should they eat? They should first and foremost not skip meals and they should be eating protein, whether that's in the form of eggs, meat, fish, chicken. I don't care what form you want to eat that protein, um, but that is the most complicated of the foods. It's the one that the cells need the most. It's the one that the body really, really um, performs well. And uh, that's the first food that should be going in. Second should be steamed green vegetables. And then everything else comes after that. So A lot of people are eating a lot of carbohydrates. They're having a cup of coffee and a bagel on the way out of the house. They're feeding their kid a bowl of cereal and expecting them to perform well in school and be smart and get along with others and not space out and not be surly or upset. And the fact is we're not giving our kids enough protein and we're allowing these fast foods to be thrown at them. And um, it's easy and convenient and it certainly fills us up, but it does not have nutrients So now how do we perform in a day when we don't have nutrition? We have to go to our reserves. Well, what if you don't have reserves? Now you're, you know, a weepy, um, surly mess. And, you know, now your kid has learning problems. And the fact is, well, of course they do. But it's not from what you think. It's from the adequate nutrition that they should be getting in the first place. Our grandparents got it. I have a little time left, but I, you, you kind of tickled me so I'm going to go a tiny bit over here. Question. Um, usually we hear about eating vegetables first, more greens, et cetera, et cetera. 
Are you reversing that by saying, no, we need more protein by weight than vegetables and starches? And also, um, or can we replace animal protein with a combination of uh, plant protein? Your, 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 your thoughts on that? Well, there's many countries in this world that don't eat animals and a lot of vegans and vegetarians that are very healthy and do it right, but they do it right. They don't eat pasta for breakfast and lunch and dinner and bread. And we in America aren't very aren't taught very well how to be vegans and vegetarians. So we rely on the carbohydrates. And of course, I've seen patient after patient not be super healthy that are eating that way. So I don't care how you get that protein, but you do have to do it correctly. If you are going to do it without animals, then you need to soak your beans for a day or two. That breaks down the outside tissue and allows you to absorb it better. And that is the proper way to prepare beans and legumes. But we aren't taught that. We just open up the can and call it, you know, a bean day. And uh, the fact is, yes, I think protein is more important than anything because I've seen a lot of patients over the years that say, I hate vegetables. I'm sick. And I say, all right. And they say, well, I don't know how to get better without eating vegetables. And I said, well, you do need to eat protein, knock out these things, take these nutrients, get the enzymes in, and you will get the most you can from the things that you are eating. So everyone needs more vegetables. Nobody's eating enough of them. So I don't mean to put that down, but the first thing that goes on the plate should be um, the steak, the chicken, the fish, the meat of any kind and eggs. Eggs are a perfect food. It comes in its own container. You can make it hard boiled. There's a million ways to do it. You can hide the taste if you don't like them. And it's an, a perfect food that goes into the body and allows you to have the energy and make the, the energy you're supposed to. And when you're talking about eggs, you're not necessarily just talking egg whites. You're talking about the full egg. The full egg. It's a full, it's perfect. Now, eggs have cholesterol, but the cholesterol is not the thing that causes high cholesterol in our bodies. Our, our bodies make 80% of the cholesterol that, that we have. 20% of it is just from diet. So I have seen so many people with tremendous high cholesterol eating eggs, eliminating the other things that were barraging their system as far as just bad choices. And they could eat as many eggs as they want. And their cholesterol came down, 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 down. So it wasn't the eggs. It's just a lot of times people with high cholesterol do have poor diets. So, you know, if they're eating crappy, sorry, if they're eating poorly overall, you want to clean up the whole system and not just eliminate eggs because they have cholesterol in them. Well, I think Dr. Julie, we got a, a good synopsis, a tiny, tiny synopsis of um, eating right and what, you know, how to make your diet a little bit healthier, how to make your diet politically healthier as well. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, why don't you tell us how uh, folks can reach you, have a chat with you, maybe see what you're all about to see what you have to, uh, you know, if, if, they, if they can see it through your eyes. Certainly. There's a website that they can uh, get onto, which is called naturessources.com. Dr. Julie Gatz, also known as simply Dr. Julie. Thank you so kindly <laughs> for having been on Politics Done Right. I think, I think our viewers have a little bit better interest in their digestive tract right now. I'm happy. That's my purpose. <laughs> Thank you. Laughing my A off, Egberto. The problem you have with economics is that you know the basics, but then you go off the deep end, left side blaming things that aren't the reason for the problems. And again, what is it that you disagree with? You believe in supply and demand, true? Yes. All right. 
So there is a large supply of oil out there still. We've already postulated that Americans have only dropped their intake of gasoline by 2% with this rise in price. And nobody has had any problems finding gasoline or oil or diesel anywhere. There is ample supply. And let me tell you why there's ample supply, because there's a lot of cheating as well. China is buying a whole lot of Russian oil on the cheap, and India is buying a whole lot of Russian oil on the cheap. And if you believe the truth that is, that oil is fungible, right? It means that if India is not buying oil from Shell and Exxon anymore, or China is not buying oil from the majors, but buying the clandestine oil from Russia then you can understand why we really don't have a shortage. Now, why are they raising the prices? Because they can tell you, they can lie to you, to anyone who is gullible and say, Russia is causing the price of oil. Here is a counterintuitive thing, people. Russia at war producing the same amount of oil as it did because the war is not in Russia. The war is in Ukraine. So therefore... Russia's oil, and they're probably pumping more than normal anyway, should be bringing down the price of oil. Oh, counterintuitive! Because you're buying all the crap you're hearing on TV. Go to India and read the Indian newspapers. They are filling themselves up with Russian cheap oil. And China is doing the same thing. That means China and these guys aren't buying oil off the high price market. Which means there should be somewhat of a glut. Why do you think... The oil companies really aren't drilling. Oh, they're going to say, oh, it's Biden. He has these policies that are that are stopping this. No, it's not Biden. They are making a calculated decision that costs all of us money. When in reality, there is likely a glut of oil. Oh, my God, Egberto. That is counterintuitive. The Putin tax, even Biden. I, don't, I think Biden even himself knows the truth. I think he's lying. There should be a glut of oil. Yes, Europe is not buying oil, but India and China are buying oil from elsewhere. And don't think that Brazil and all these countries aren't getting that cheap oil and, put it, and rebranding that oil on the market. I mean, so folks, please, I wish you won't just buy what you hear on TV. I wish you'd listen to what you hear on TV, listen to what I say, listen to what everybody else say, and then do some thinking on your own. One of the things that you get from politics done right is you're not going to get the same old BS that you're going to get on TV. Oh, think this way. You need to think that way. And all these different ways they want to tell you. They want to tell you why the prices are high. No. Yeah, Biden gave you a lot of money. And that money, they know you have it. And because they know you have it, they know if they raise their prices, you're going to still buy it because you want it. Man, we are taken to the cleaner so often. And because we are gullible into believing the things that they tell us, we just take it. We just take it. We just let them kick us and say, kick us one more time, please. My friend Matthew Dowd once again has some good advice for Democrats. Work on your strength. Well, Mitch McConnell's problem is, is that he has not done anything to put guardrails on his own party. And so what he's done is if it, if it was only Donald Trump out there saying crazy stuff and doing crazy things and allowing a majority of the country to dislike him, that's one thing. The problem is, is he now has candidate after candidate after candidate that says as bizarre or worse things than Donald Trump that are running for the United States Senate or 
or running for Congress or running for governor, running for secretary of state. That's the problem the Republicans have in this. So when voters look at the choice between, okay, I don't agree with Democrats on all these issues, but over there, there are a bunch of nutcases over there. There are a bunch of people that want to dismantle our democracy over there. That's the choice that people have to make. You, you can say you may disagree with me on student loan, on forgiving student loans, or you may not like inflation. But do you really want to turn the, the country over to one flew over to the cuckoo's nest? I don't think so. And, you know, when you go over what a lot of these Republicans are saying, these MAGA Republicans are saying, I mean, you know that most of the country is not there. Most of the country does not believe that stuff. I mean, it's in, they're incredible that Chavez somehow infl- influenced our election, a dead man influenced our election, that there are bamboos and in, in, in mail ballots, etc. So we're searching for that to find the fraud in the election that somehow Donald Trump is going to return triumphant and what he did for the country was great. Do you really think most Americans believe that? So therefore, you don't work on the strength on that uh, right now. Please get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it for a pledge of $120. Get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. The contributions from my books go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT-only membership for $40, a Pacifica-only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org, choose Politics Done Right for the program, and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. God, thank you so kindly for being here with us, Robbie. You always bring us great personalities as you've, as you've done with us in the past. So we have with us uh, Kamal Franklin of Atlanta, Georgia, who is a founder of the Community Movement Builders. He is an organizer and activist. He's also a media specialist as well. And he's an attorney. And we're going to be asking him basically exactly what him and his uh, body of work is and what his organization does. They are centralized in Pittsburgh, Atlanta, which is on the south side in southwest Atlanta, where I'm a resident as well. So, Kamal, thank you for joining us. And how long have you been organizing, doing the work and in Pittsburgh with Community Movement Builders? Well, one, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you sharing your platform. Uh, we've been in the Pittsburgh neighborhood as an organization since 2015, where we purchased a community house and started doing our organizing and activism work. That particular neighborhood that you're talking about, Pittsburgh, is an as a neighborhood that was founded approximately, I think, in 1883 by formerly enslaved Africans as a settlement post-slavery. Um, and since that time period up to today, it's been a vast majority Black community, a working class Black community. But like all communities in Atlanta, it is under the threat of gentrification, um, it is under the threat of displacement for working class folks. Um, Atlanta, again, like a lot of cities across the country, is ex- experiencing this tremendous growth 
in corporate development and new housing that's being built for middle class and upper middle class people, which is slowly pushing out working class and poor people from major cities. Thank you so much for the background on it. That was actually a lot of information really condensed, but I think it's particularly relevant and why I understand why you said so, that this is a historically black working class neighborhood in Atlanta called Pittsburgh. So it's especially um, heart wrenching to see what's occurring. As you know, I'm in real estate, so I've, I've been watching these circumstances. So I'm really grateful that there are boots on the ground like your organization not only organizing people, but your media, Black Power Media, out there on podcasts, educating. I guess two things. So you mentioned you purchased a community house. So a lot of people get a little caught up. They, at least that's what my interpretation is. They think, well, you purchased a house. What's what's wrong? You know, why shouldn't I purchase a house? Can you explain, elaborate a little bit? Of course, I have my own viewpoint. I don't think we should be gaining wealth off the backs of poor people. That's my problem with it. You know, I don't care if you gain wealth. In fact, I help people to gain wealth. But can you elaborate a little bit on that? Because maybe that'll help some folks cross over and leave the dark side. Well, no, I mean, I think it's important to talk about the idea and the issue of gentrification, particularly through a lens of what drives it, right? And what drives gentrification is city policy mixed with development and developers, particularly real estate developers, who begin to target particular communities for change, right? And usually those are communities that don't have a lot of power. They obviously don't have a lot of wealth. Uh, the residents are are mostly poor or working class people. In fact, one of the misnomers is that most people think that in these neighborhoods, folks are owners of their property. But most of these folks in Pittsburgh and other places are renters. So they're impacted not only by the value of homes going up, but also the value of the tax property, the taxes on those homes going up, which in turn either force and or make landlords, owners of the property, raise rents, right? Or those who are working class owners now who uh, believe that they're in a position that they've created wealth, they now have to worry about larger tax bills that didn't have to worry about. And then in addition to that, usually when someone is selling a property, in a working class neighborhood, and maybe they purchased a property seven, eight, 15 years ago for like 80,000, 90,000. And so now they're selling it for 200,000, 210,000. Obviously, that's a great windfall for somebody. No one begrudges that. The issue also becomes that even once you sell your property, you're no longer in a position to stay in the city. So you now have to move out further, usually from your job, usually from social services, usually from public transportation, usually from social networks that you've had all your life. Because even though you've gotten a good windfall of cash, that that new money only affords Mm -hmm property that's outside the city limits because so much other gentrification has happened in the city, which doesn't allow you to stay um, in that same place that you were, unless you are willing to settle for like buying a condo, which is less space, but probably the same amount of money that you paid for your house 10 or 15 years ago. So our community house that we purchased through some donations um, really is about giving us an opportunity to talk, work with, Um, have a conversation with our neighbors, with other people in the neighborhood about that issue of gentrification, um, about policing, um, about wealth value, so that we can have conversations with folks and and be very clear. So we're not here to tell you not to necessarily sell your house at a profit, but we are here to tell you that to stabilize a community and to stop it from gentrifying, 
certain things have to take place, right? So you have to think about alternatives to just uh, market-based um, housing as a way in which people gain generational wealth. You have to think about land trust. You have to think about keeping your homes. You have to think about challenging people on the neighborhood association or challenging city councils around how development happens in your community, because a lot of times this development happens. And most of the folks who live, whether renters or owners, have very little say in what development actually happens in their neighborhoods and in their communities. Um, and so when somebody decides that they're going to put a big box store or something or a town, big town homes or some developer decides they're going to put 500, 600,000 homes in those communities, that automatically has this reverberation, which causes housing prices to go up again, rents to go up and taxes to go up. And now you're forced to deal with it. So we have to flip um, that power dynamic and have residents themselves have much more say in what comes into their neighborhoods because everybody wants to benefit from a certain kind of development. But what people do not need or do not want is gentrification, which drives people from their homes and from their places where they've lived the majority of their lives. You know, I've been contemplating these circumstances that are so specific in this conversation, this dialogue with your organization, Community Movement Builders, and your Black Power Media. Um, And your focus is Atlanta uh, and the South Side. And I, I get it because I remember when I first arrived in Atlanta, driving through downtown, seeing the social death mural. And it was one of the first cities that I ever felt that was a, you know, quote unquote Mecca for specifically black people and people of color. It is unique in that regard. So I think there's something about that. However, we all know that there's housing problems all over the country. So apparently you know, this um, private interest in real estate, which is kind of my wheelhouse, is pervasive. But you bring up some some really crucial points. And Egberto obviously covers national and global. So this is very relevant. I these days I've been thinking about the the especially with it recently being Indigenous Peoples Day. The term gentrification is really just the new gentrifiers in 2020 are just the old colonizers. This is really not a new concept. You know, it's what did colonizers do? Come in, take over, you know, usurp the resources and get rid of the indigenous people. You know, what do gentrifiers do? Come in, usurp the resources, take over via the civic engagement you're talking about and get rid of the indigenous people. That is I just love the way you articulate that. I had I've been talking gentrification and I never quite put it that way. That is that is going to be a new concept that I have to use. But, Robbie, if you'd let me, uh, I want to address something that that uh, Mr. Uh, Franklin said. And specifically, when he talked about people coming into the neighborhood, I read recently that there are corporations that are coming into neighborhoods and buying a whole swat of homes uh, modifying them and then selling them out. And that seems somehow like an encroachment on a sector that they shouldn't have rights on. Is that the way uh, it should be, uh, Mr. Franklin? And I know, uh, Robbie, you are also the real estate agent. What would what would that, you know, would that entail preventing corporations from doing something like that? Well, what's interesting is, you know, when we talk about the, the, the large the housing crisis, right, and the Great Recession, obviously one of the main drivers was of that was uh, the securitization of loans, right? Loans 
uh, were brought up by these large corporations uh, that were made into securities. And then people's mortgages basically were used to pay off bonds and so forth, right? And, and when that, that game collapsed, the market um, and these corporations reinstitutionalized. So instead of, and there became some, um, some laws that stopped them from doing it as directly as they did it before. And so one of the ways in which they picked back up on that, uh, uh, companies like BlackRock and some, several others, was that they started buying houses, right? Which usually were rental houses. And then they started securitizing rents, right? So sometimes they wouldn't buy them, I mean, sell them. They would mm-hmm. hold them. And now rents became the way in which they, they would use for bonds and so forth. And so that's part of what's happening now too, is that these large corporations, multi-billion dollar corporations are now buying their properties on courthouse steps at prices that regular folks can no longer afford, you know, and, and even though there's this issue around housing being a commodity, we all know that one of the old time ways that working class folks would supplement their income uh, when they were in a position to might be to buy a second home and rent that out. Right. And so that kind of working class ethic of like I'm building my wealth, I got one a second home to renting out to somebody um, down the block or someplace else and is supplementing my income to providing, providing somebody with a good home. Even that form of sort of a, a ethic is now leaving this that market, and it's strictly around who has the most money to buy the most property at once, so that they can do bigger things with it. And so it's the commodific the further commodification of housing and mm-hmm. property. Um, and housing, obviously, in the United States has never been thought about as a human right or something that we deserve just because we're born. Mm-hmm. It's something that strictly becomes this this. Uh, commodification of like, we have to uh, sell it at the higher price, uh, buy it at whatever at the highest price, we fix it up to sell it again to move again. Um, and I think that type of sort of ethic, you know, capitalist ethic pervades the housing market. Um, and it partly, again, is getting us back to this sort of rush in, in, in uptake again in housing prices and rents that again is fueling the gentrification, the subtle colonialism, the, the ethnic cleansing, right? That all of that, which is basically now, you know, what we sometimes wrap up in simpler terms of saying gent- that gentrification. So Kamal's an attorney. So I'm going to, I'm going to basic that down <laughs> for the regular people, <laughs> you know, he, cause when he speaks, and so you do the segmento too, you bring in like five different topics and it's very complicated with very big words. So let me, let, let's break this down a bit. It, I, I have to do this a lot in real estate. Uh, you touched on a lot. Um, the reason I brought up the gentrifier colonel parallel is because people, the face of it, I see people commenting sometimes. We had a groundbreaking ceremony the other day here. I sent it to Egberto and our mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, um, who's a Biden pick and favorite, uh, a Democratic darling, I guess, uh, said it's all about planning. And so when Kamal brings up, you know, the the targeting of communities, the truth is, is that that is facilitated through our planning. And, you know, we, Kamau and myself have been witness to these real estate for-profit tours run by City Hall. And at the same time, these for-profit tours of, that brought in, you know, all these companies and developers and so on, there were no protections on the legacy residents. In fact, they weren't even warned. And so to, it's very strange, you know, and odd to see this someone like Keisha Lance Bottoms stating some, a, a comment like it's all about planning, yet they've planned so poorly. 
And our commissioner, you know, Tim Keene, is still gainfully employed, even though he was responsible for that. So when Kamaus, when you when you bring up BlackRock, right, which is a huge company on Wall, on Wall Street, a hedge fund that buys up real estate. And it's important, too, to note that they usually buy the low hanging fruit, which is the single family home entry. Right. So that's why when you're seeing all these articles about people not being able to get into the market, first time homeowners, that is why. But please don't be confused in the same way about gentrifier or colonizer and, and the, the face of it, because the truth is, is that Redfin, Zillow, Compass, you know, and I know I'm in real estate. All of these companies are allowed to operate in dual capacity and buy direct from the public. And in my opinion, it's an ethics issue. And Kamal, we, we've discussed this before. In fact, Kamal's organization, just to ensure that locals, legacy residents were included in the uh, planning process, which is in Atlanta, it's called the NPU, the Neighborhood Planning Unit. He wrote a petition so that it, basically at the basic level, there's a neighborhood association. And that is who's officially recognized uh, by City Hall as the voice of that community. But we have a lot of our neighborhood associations in Atlanta allowed to charge monetary dues. And in essence, it's a way to keep poor people out of the planning process. And Atlanta hasn't changed that. So we have this mayoral election coming up. Everyone's talking about housing, right? And who foots the brunt of affordable housing when we allow companies like BlackRock, Redfin, Zillow, you know, private investors to dictate how the market's going to work? The taxpayers. And that's why these taxes are going up. And that's why City Hall's allowing it. But no one in the mayoral race who are running, Andre Dickens, Felicia Moore, who's a broker, uh, Kasim Reed, is discussing regulating the real estate industry. Not one. If I jump in, jump in real quick. And, you know, I just want to say one thing about why they're not. It's not poor planning. It's their it is the plan. Right. <laughs> so these things are to happen or not. They're not accidents. They're not. Oh, we forgot. They're not. This is just some unfortunate consequence of policy. These are the this is the actual policy that is dictated by uh, the city officials hand in hand with these uh, corporate developments. So these are not accidents. This is something that's planned as this is what development means for them. You know, in addition, when we talk about Atlanta as supposedly a black Mecca. um, So what we're really saying is that under the black leadership, which has been here for 40 to 50 years, um, Atlanta has gone from over 60 percent black to now in the latest census track, dipping below 50 percent black. And that's because these black elected officials have, again, worked hand in hand with these corporate elites to decide what Atlanta will look like and who Atlanta is for. So Atlanta is slowly turning into San Francisco and Seattle, which means working class people, black or white or otherwise, um, are being priced out. Uh, of living in Atlanta, that poor people are being priced out of living in Atlanta, that legacy residents are being priced out of living in Atlanta. So there's a whole group of people, cross-section of groups and people who can no longer afford to live in Atlanta because only a middle-class sort of managerial class of folks who work for these larger corporations are now, or this city is now being built around helping them move into Atlanta directly so they can get to their jobs easier and making other people pushed out who they feel can no longer afford what the new Atlanta looks like. I want to, before Robbie comes in, just a quick thing here, because Robbie said it 
right when she she said that um the mayor talked about planning and i think you reiterated that uh mr franklin when you say that uh it was planned and i want to just give a sort of a national scope to this everybody wonders why a group of people in this country always is uh, they're always left behind many times it is because of the face of the same the leaders of the face of those same people that betray them and when we realize that then i think we can uh, make the necessary changes but to your point Egberto, and to Kamal's point too that is part of the plan because right. people are disarmed yes. when you feel as though you know there's something called wholesaling and i want to make sure that we stay focused on Kamal's group even though the work is integral obviously to what he's doing for this particular show or interview but there's something called wholesaling right and this isn't being addressed at all these are non-licensed people going around and unfortunately, they are in bed to some degree with with agents, with realtors. You know, I'm one firm, so it doesn't really matter if I don't do it. But what you see often with the wholesalers is that wholesalers tend to be of the demographic of the target community. So, for example, if it's on the south side, it's going to in Atlanta and for in, in Miami, it might, they might be Latin in Atlanta. They're going to be black. And what that is done purposely. I have seen Caucasian brokers place wholesalers in between as middlemen to obtain that property. It's a straw buyer. It's an assignment contract because the people are less on alert when they see someone who looks like them being approaching them to purchase right. their home. Right. So yeah. it's, and, and this is no different, you know, with um, politics. So you, you see like the president now of the Atlanta Beltline, which is really a sidewalk, um, you know, that we funded through taxes and APS. It, Clyde Higgs is a is an African American man who is the president. Well, he's new, you know, and you see this over and over and over, and people get so confused about what's happening to them. But it's really not their fault because when you look at media, which is why I'm so grateful about the show, we're being fed a narrative. If you watch that Southside Trail opening Beltline video, it sounds great. It sounds absolutely great. But when you get into the reality of what is occurring in communities like Pittsburgh, you see the need on why the organization, community movement builders, and the need for independent Black power media to tell their own narrative and story, to say we have to be included in planning. And the truth is, it comes at a cost. Kamal, you brought up two things I definitely want to make sure we discuss. One, you said the, the targeting and the planning. How is agency, specifically like code enforcement, can you give an example, because I think you have one, used against legacy residents and or organizations to target and dismantle kind of a movement kind of pushing back? Sure. I mean, in two ways. One, when you talk about a movement, uh, in particular, our organization, part of the work that we do around the issue of gentrification is really being in people's space. Right. And so we have a community house and we have a beautiful mural painted on the side of that community house, which is basically saying protect the black community, stop gentrification from happening. Um, and recently, code enforcement was called on us to write us a citation, a criminal citation, um, saying that our mural uh, obviously was against the law. Um, and so, right. you know, we put a public pressure campaign because this is our house and under the criminal code, we commissioned the mural. So it's our mural. There is no violation of the law. There's no HOA housing association. There's no, no fees. 
this is a regular a regular home that we purchased that we own, and we have a right to decorate that home as we see fit. And so the city had to back down uh, from the issuance of that citation, but only after public pressure was put on them, and this became something that we put on social media that folks got to see and check out. Um, in addition to the last point that you made about sort of the identity pers- uh, um, uh, similarities between those pushing something. There's also a political identity, which is often the same um, of the folks who are, are are at the forward end of gentrification, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, the gentrification is happening in these so-called liberal cities, right? These liberal cities, which are supposed to have the interest, again, who on their platform put forth that they are siding with, they are supporting, again, working class folks, folks of color, poor folks, but is these it is these liberal cities across the country. You know, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Right. So it's across the country that gentrification is taking hold. So at the same time, you have folks talking about stopping climate change and, re- and representing different large national issues. These folks are, again, allowing, working with, supporting um, these large um, um, corporations and these local big corporations to push housing prices outside the barriers of housing and rental prices, outside the barriers of what working class and poor people can afford. And then they just shrug their shoulders like it's outside of their control where you are the political apparatus, right? right. You can do, th- and usually in these cities, the largest landowner is the city itself. Right. So the city itself can develop affordable housing. It can develop land trust. It can think of alternative ways to put the brakes on gentrification but it chooses not to because it's decided that the resources that they get as individuals and the love of shiny new objects uh, is far more important than keeping a city affordable, working class and attainable for people, as opposed to bringing in these shiny new objects um, or vis-a-vis the Beltline, these new townhomes, these uh, condos, these expensive homes, these large corporate developments which are told to us to be progress, even if progress means that it's pushing poor working class people outside the city. <laughs> it's progress. You got to go. It's progress. You got to yeah. go. <laughs> well, you know, again, you bring up a lot, but I want to tie things in and we, we're going to have about three more questions. And, and I think they're going to tie everything together in here. Poem. I really want people to understand and reach the, the conclusion themselves that the lack of inclusive development, which organization community movement builders is in the streets, you know, in a very different way, fighting for and creating awareness around. And sometimes with the murals, you got to kind of wake people up, like shake, shake them a little bit like, hey, you know, it, it, sometimes that's the only way instead of having this kind of mild like, can, can you see our point of view? Can you ask? Because I I. Trust me, I tried that for three years. Can you can you can you try to understand? You know, I'll eat the piece of pound cake. I'll attend the meetings you want. But can you try to understand how these people would feel? But that didn't work. So it's it's very important. Not only the the matter in which you are kind of handling this right from a per- place of strength, but the other component is that your organization, you as an attorney, actually can defend. So when that happened with code enforcement you were able to explain a legal argument and have the city back up. Because I remember 
in Pittsburgh before years back, there was a mural commissioned um, and it was put up. It looked like a giant serpent on a wall. And the community of Pittsburgh, which is predominantly African-American, predominantly lower working class, very Christian oriented to a degree, had a fit about that mural up on their wall. And all the gentrifiers came out and said, it's art, it's art. And I point that out because of the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy and these same gentrifiers have Black Matter signs in front of their home. So you, but their same gentrifiers have paid those monetary dues and allow for people to be excluded out of the city engagement. The other component, the last thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up is you mentioned um, besides the code enforcement being targeted and folks being displaced, specifically lower income black people out of Atlanta, the quote unquote Mecca and them losing social networks. When when our youth have to leave and see their their family's property out on the street, you know, in evictions and have to leave homes that they're uh, that they've rented for generations because they didn't have the ability to buy due to redlining and they have to start in different schools or they're out selling water. How do you see that as a correlation in crime? Because crime is a huge topic right now in the city, including this um, cop city, this big, you know, massive development that they're putting pol- money into police departments for. Can you talk just a bit about that? So as we know, gentrification has several drivers and part of those drivers are the actual use of the police against, uh, you know, what we may call the indigenous population, right? The use of military force, the use of criminality or criminalizing people so that you can arrest, harass, relocate people outside of their neighborhoods. Um, So, you know, again, being from Brooklyn, New York, I was as a practicing attorney, I worked on a a federal lawsuit, a, a class action lawsuit around what was called stop and frisk and how Black youth in particular were targeted by the police for stop and frisk um, in numbers far outstretching any potential criminality or so-called breaking of crime, which means that they were targeted because of their race. That's a system that in some ways is nationalized, right? Uh, Communities of color are over-policed. They're over-ticketed. They're overstopped. They're over-arrested, obviously over-convicted and given longer sentences. And this is how partly how gentrification works to start targeting these communities, having these people move out, protecting the white gentrifiers. And you spoke about the gentrification, the gentrifiers themselves. And that's part of the dichotomy is that the gentrifiers who, you know, they think of themselves as lovely people and some of them may be lovely people. But when they come, they're not coming to share a community. The instincts are that they're coming to take over a community and to displace a community. And so, again, another quick short story in Harlem. Uh, there was a famous uh, um, in Harlem, there's a park called Morningside Park, euphemistically referred to as Marcus Garvey Park, where every Sunday you would have African drummers for literally a decade who would perform in a park. And, and that was sort of a spiritual practice for folks in Harlem to either gather or hear the drums. As gentrification proceeded, new towers were, were built, um, condos, the white neighbors the new white neighbors started to complain to the police about the drumming so that they can have the drumming stopped, right? So their input into the community was that the quote-unquote indigenous culture, the lifestyle, all of that had to go to make things what we consider to be safer. And, And lastly, I'll say, you know, no one says that poor neighborhoods are some paradise. 
poor neighborhoods need resources, right? But people still have social networks that they depend upon, that they live through. Um, but the, the, the issue is who should have the power to make the change and development that these neighborhoods need? Should it be the people downtown? Should it be the real estate developers? Should it be the big corporate hierarchy? Or should it be the people themselves who are in need of the resources, in need of new development that fits their needs as a community, as opposed to having development that pushes them out? Mal, I want to thank you. Uh, Egberto, I want to thank you because uh, I'm hoping that this uh, interview and discussion with you and dialogue will awaken some people. I hope it will spark uh, some folks, especially our gentrifiers who have the influence to ask themselves, you know, should I be supporting holistic development? Should I be more aware? Should we have walk-in community centers in every three mile radius um, in these divested communities for legacy residents? Because they do, they have been uh, damaged, you know, and, and need assistance beyond what I've received in my life. We can level things out and cost and and, in, and not incur the costs, the capital costs and the human costs by supporting organizations that support people on the ground. And that would be your organization, community movement builders, Black Power Media, who support holistic development, who are the voice of the people. You're doing the work, but obviously we have to support you. So I, I beg people to go to your um, Twitter, your site, visit the house, um, disagree when people are harassing the organization at the level or do not participate in it. Say, no, I don't condone the harassment of anti-gentrification organizations who are doing quality work. So Egberto, thank you, thank you, thank you, bro. Thank you for making this happen. Thank you for doing the show, um, uh, Robbie. I think this is exceptional. And for uh, brother Kamal Franklin, I've been uh, I've always been a fan. Thank you so kindly for what you are doing in your community. That is reflected all over. We have several events coming up, okay. including uh, on the 21st, we're going to have an event at Morehouse to talk about the issue of uh, gentrification in Atlanta, Morehouse College, to talk about the issue of gentrification and over-policing and actually Morehouse's support uh, for some of the policing activities which are impacting not only their students, but the surrounding Black community that they've uh, been a part of. What is the best way uh, for people to uh, get to you and help you? Give us one specific link that's a catch-all. Best link is communitymovementbuilders.org, which is our website. People can find out about our work and people can also contact us directly to learn how to get involved or how to support us. And we have a donation page and all the rest of it. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. I want to thank Kamal for making time for us and speaking so plainly and being so brave and bold. Um, I'm very grateful. It, it gives me hope for what's going to happen. I think the work that he's doing and the work that Egberto's doing is changing things. And I want to thank Egberto for making this happen. And especially I want to thank the Politics Done Right Posse for watching, tuning in. Please, please, please share and please go to the Community Movement Builders site and support their efforts. Please get one of my several books out there. As I see it, Class Warfare, the only resort to right-wing doom for a contribution of $120. It's worth it. How to talk to your right-wing relatives, friends, and neighbors for a contribution of $120. How to make America utopia, take away the economy from those who rigged it for a pledge of $120. Get any two of those books for $200, any three of those books for $250. The contributions for my book
books, go directly to support our station, KPFT 90.1 FM. Alternatively, folks, please get your basic KPFT-only membership for $40, a Pacifica-only membership for $25, or choose from one of our many other gifts for your contribution. Just go to kpft.org, choose Politics Done Right for the program, and select an option either for our books or something else to support the station. It is definitely worth it. You can listen and or watch Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My Twitter handle is at Egberto Willies, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L. I-E-S. But don't you forget, listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. all central time. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT on your mind. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support. That is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Well, folks, that's it for today. You know how I'm going to end this baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. 